We'll be in Luke 17. That's where we'll begin. As we continue our verse-by-verse study through Luke's gospel, until this morning's sermon is the parable of the unprofitable servant. We find ourselves in Luke 17, 7. Father, I thank you for these verses. <clears throat> they bless me greatly this week as I have studied them. I don't know if there are more convicting verses in all of Scripture regarding the way we should view our service to you and or the, really the way we should view ourselves as we serve you. So I pray, Lord, for conviction and for perception about ourselves, a right view of ourselves, and we can all, uh, being cloaked in flesh, be given over to proud views of our commitment to you. Those things that uh, we would do for you would allow us to look better at ourselves than we should. And so help us, regardless of any work or service that is done for you, to always view ourselves as unprofitable servants. I pray for all the truths that are contained in these verses to be brought forth to your people here, that you would do justice to them. Use me as your uh, weak and flawed servant and vessel with which to preach your word, but really asking that it would be a time that you would speak to your people, remove me, minister to each of them personally. We, can, we see this a continued time of worship, Lord. It definitely doesn't conclude with the singing. We'd even see your, the preaching of your word as the highlight of the service itself, Lord. So help us to see this as a time of worship, remove all distractions, and just give our hearts fully and all attention committed to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, amen. So I pole vaulted in high school, and like most sports, there's anticipation that you're going to get better with each subsequent year. And so there was some anticipation about my senior year and how, how high I might be able to vault. And so my dad, with the season approaching, the wrestling season had ended, took me down to the track to do some pole vaulting, and I didn't want him to be bored, and so watching me warm up. And so I decided this day that I was not going to warm up. And so I go to the end of the runway with my pole, and I'm racing down toward the mats, and because I had not worn, warmed up, I felt this terrible rip in my hamstring. And so that was pretty much the end of my, of my pole vaulting season, because I ended up rehabbing differently or wrongly than I should have. So I thought the best way to deal with this severe hamstring tear was to do as little as possible. And so I stayed off it as much as I could, and then every time my, my hamstring would start to feel a little better, I'd, I don't even know if I'd really go back to practice. I would actually just try to vault at the next tournament so that I wouldn't put any more wear and tear on my hamstring than necessary, and sure enough, I'd be running down the runway, and immediately I'd felt that pain in my hamstring again. And so at my senior year, I ended up the highest height I cleared was two feet lower than the height that I had cleared the, the previous year. Sometime later, I was sharing about this injury with someone, and he said to me, he told me how wrongly I had tried to rehab my leg, and he said that I should have been jogging on it very lightly and making sure that I was active, that there would be blood flowing because he said the blood is very healing. He said that's why if you ever get a paper cut, it takes so long to heal because there's no blood there. It's actually better if you have a jagged cut where there's an amount of blood that can then produce the, allow it to heal faster. So now fast forward to my junior year of college, and I was at Florida Tech. They didn't have a taco football team, but they had this flag football team that I participated in each year. And at the end of the season, there was this all-star game, and, believe, and we're more, uh, we, we'd have more fans for the all-star game than the, other, than the other games. So there was this big turnout to watch the all-star game, and for some reason, believe it or not, someone had forgotten to bring the flags. 
So we didn't have any flags, and I guess nobody had the idea to go and get the flags. Someone came up with a better idea of just playing tackle football that day <laughs> in front of everyone. So we played tackle football. We had no, pla- no pads, no helmets, no protective gear. And this was the day that I ended up separating my shoulder, the injury that led to my honorable discharge from the military uh, a couple years later when some metal on my shoulder from, that, from the surgery, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, showed up in an x-ray. So everyone knew that my ROTC scholarship or my, my possible commission in the military was in jeopardy. And so the injury was on a Wednesday. So I'm flown home on a Thursday, which was Thanksgiving, wasn't it? It was Thanksgiving. So I was pretty much on this plane by myself. And then Friday, I'm in an, a meeting. So I'm, I go from Florida on Wednesday to being home, flying home Thursday. And then Friday, I'm in this meeting with this orthopedic surgeon. And he looks at my shoulder and he says that you have one of the worst separations. He didn't call it a tear because the ligaments and tendons had ripped off of the bone. They didn't, the ligaments and tendons didn't rip in the middle. And I said, well, I don't understand because that sounds good then because the ligaments and tendons are still together. And he said, no, it's not good. It's actually better if the ligaments and tendons rip in the middle because then there's going to be a lot of what? Blood which is healing, but for the ligaments and tendons to just rip off the bone the way they did, it's not going to heal well, and we're going to have to do surgery. And so I had surgery a couple days later and then tried to rehab throughout. Uh, didn't go back to Florida until spring semester, and so rehab during the rest of fall semester and then Christmas. And then went back to Florida, and if you know anything about uh, college credits, I had my 18 credits from the fall semester and my 18 credits from the spring semester. So I had 36 credits. So that was a pretty stressful semester of, of college. When I was talking, <clears throat> now fast forward 20 years, December 2020, and I'm lying in bed, and I'm unable to move because of my sciatica pain. And I'm doing my best not to move so that I can heal because I believe that this is the best approach to uh, recovering. Even though I tried to deny it for quite a few weeks, it became evident to me that I was actually getting worse. So you start to suspect something, but then you deny it, and then finally it's like, there is no denying that I am much worse now, worse now at this one-month mark than I was four weeks ago when this pain began. And so I go to the internet, and I start watching these videos on sciatica pain or sciatica issues on YouTube. And surprise, not, maybe not surprisingly, actually, all of the doctors said the same thing, that one of the worst things you can do with a lower back injury or sciatica issue is not move that you need to move, you need to do something, even if it's light. There has to be some activity because otherwise the muscles atrophy worse, which contributes to the the pain and worsens the situation. And so I told Katie, you know, everything I'm watching says that I need to get up and I need to move around. Now, because I couldn't even stand without pain, my dear wife, and I'm not joking, with tears in her eyes, says, no, don't get out of bed, don't get out of bed, don't try to walk around, it's going to be excruciating for you. Just stay in bed one more day. Let me take care of you. She's making us try. I'll bring you, I'll keep bringing you coffee. I'll bring you popcorn. I never ate so much popcorn in my life. So, so she says, just stay in bed just one more day. Just stay in bed the rest of today and then one more day and let's see if you're better. And so I said, okay. And sure enough, I stayed in bed and just felt even worse two days later. And I said, that's it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to get up. And now every time I've gotten up, I've just been in considerable pain. And so I get up that day and just very slowly, I start shuffling around 
and then slowly the shuffling turns into small steps, and then I'm able to kind of make my way upstairs, and it ends up in this 45-minute walk outside, and of course I look like this very old man moving very slowly around my house. I didn't want to go too far in case something happened, so I, and I had to, you know, get home or someone had to come get me, but it was thrilling because I was finally up and around, Versus sitting, uh, sitting down, so now any time, or laying down, so now any time I have lower back or sciatic issues, one of the, I try to make sure that I stay upright, I try to walk around, try to be active versus laying down and definitely not sitting down where it's worse. Now, some of you who have had loved ones in the hospital before or have been in the hospital yourselves, what do the doctors or the staff generally try to do with you as quickly as possible? Get you up and get you moving around. The last thing they want is for you to be you know, stuck in that bed where you're just going to continue to, to worsen. And what do they say that like for every day in bed, it takes a week of, of recovery. If you ever deal with people who are struggling with depression, or it could even be discouragement, one of the worst things for them is to stay in bed and do nothing. And that's what they want to do. Or that's what you might want to do if you've ever struggled with depression. If you're ever dealing with someone who's struggling with depression, do the best you can to get them up and around get them serving, get them helping, get them active, do everything you can to get their attention off of themselves and onto someone else. And if you're ever depressed, one of the worst things you can do is stay in bed with all of your attention on yourself and your circumstances and your struggles. The best thing you can do is get up, think about someone else, think about what someone else needs, strive to serve, strive to to help others. Because if you stay in bed, you feel more depressed, which increases your, the temptation to stay in bed longer, and then that cycle just really continues. I could give you exam- other examples, but you get the point here. God has made us to be active. He has made us to be busy. He's made us to live in a way that the blood is flowing, right? When the blood is flowing, there's healing, there's strength, there's recovery, And I don't just mean physically, I mean mentally, I mean emotionally, I mean spiritually. God has just made us to be active and to serve. Now, at this point, you could be listening to this and you're saying, okay, so Pastor Scott is clearly going to be preaching a sermon today about serving. Not quite. When I think about this church, I think about a church that serves. I've heard from so many other pastors who have talked about how they don't have people in their church serving. I've never felt like I needed to chime into those conversations and kind of, that wor- and kind of worsen that view of lay people in the church because we all have always had people who serve so well. Well, because so many of you are servants, because so many of you are active, because so many of you have the blood flowing and you're healing and you're strong and you're, you're recovering and you're doing the things the Lord wants you to do, this sermon might actually have more application for you than it could have for other people in other churches. Because here's why. Can you think of a temptation that we could face when we serve the Lord faithfully? Now, you heard me say that correctly, because you're listening and you're like, what temptation could we face? If we're serving the Lord faithfully, we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. But sin has tainted every area of our lives so much that there is a temptation we face when we are serving the Lord faithfully. And what is that temptation? Pride. You know, I am up and I am around and the blood is flowing and I am doing so well and, and look how hard I'm working and I'm, I'm so active and I'm so busy. God must be thrilled with me. If God could have a conversation with me right now, he'd probably tell me how impressed he is with me. <laughs> you know, I spent so much time feeling indebted to God, but I've been so faithful to him lately, he might start to be a little indebted to me. 
You know, if God looked at me, he honestly might not even be able to tell much difference between me and his son. (laughs) You know? (laughs) So I'm exaggerating, but you get the point that we could be lifted up in pride because of our service, because of our faithfulness, and because of our activity for Christ. And spiritual pride is really one of the ugliest sins. Because spiritual pride is a denial of God's grace. It's a denial of what He's doing in our lives, and it's attributing to us what is being done in our lives. Now, when I talk about a denial of God's grace, I don't mean it's a denial of God's saving grace. We're never going to reach the point where we deny the salvific grace of God and think that we are saved by works. But what we could deny, and this is true, and hear me when I say this, is the sanctifying grace of God. We can deny the sanctifying grace of God, which is to say we might deny the grace that sanctifies us and allows us to serve Christ and become more like Him. Even in the verses, the probably premier verses about salvation by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, what does it say in verse 10? You've only done the works that the Lord has what? Prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. So we really can't take credit for any of the service that we do because we're just doing those things that God has laid out ahead of time for us to do. Now, this could sound a little discouraging that even when we serve, we become proud, but I have something very encouraging for you. Anytime you start to be tempted to think more of yourself than you ought you start to become a little inflated in your view of yourself and your service to the Lord, these are the verses to go to that we're looking at this morning. Because I do not know if there are better verses anyplace else in Scripture that bring us back down to earth regarding our service for Christ and preventing us from feeling too good about ourselves or convincing us that we are unprofitable servants. With that in mind, look at verse 7. Will any of you... Luke 17, 7, who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Now, that Greek word for servant, it's doulos, which is often translated as servant or bondservant, but it does mean slave. And so Jesus is describing a servant or bondservant or slave who's really serving, I mean, he's describing some intense serving here. He's talking about plowing. Plowing was very exhausting, very physical work. He talks about tending sheep, which is hard work because of how foolish sheep are. That's one reason we can be humble, is that when God looked at the animal kingdom and he wanted to compare us to something, he said that we're like sheep, and taking care of sheep requires incredible patience, and it requires incredible attentiveness. So Jesus describes this person who's plowing, who's keeping sheep. He's going to come into the, from the field, and then he asks this rhetorical question. Is the master going to say, come at once and recline at table? Now, there were times that Jesus asked questions that expected answers, but this is not one of them. This is a rhetorical question because Jesus knew that all of his listeners would know the answer to this, and they would say what? Would the master say this? No, he definitely would not say this. When the servant comes in from the field, the master is not going to say, look at you, you have done so much. You must be exhausted. Why don't you come in and sit down? 
take a load off, relax, put your feet up. Instead, look at verse 8 to see what the master would say. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and then afterward you will eat and drink. And so the master has quite a few other things to say to him instead. He says, why don't you get my meal now that you're in the house? Why don't you, now that you're finished in the field, you're finished plowing, you're finished tending the sheep, why don't you get my meal ready for me? He also says, you got to change your clothes. You've been in the field, you're, you're filthy, dirty. You've been tending the sheep and you kind of smell like them a little bit. And so I don't want you around my food. Go ahead and change your clothes too. Go in the bathroom and clean up so that you're ready to be around food and then prepare my food for me. And then when I'm eating and drinking, that's still not your time to go get your food. You're going to go ahead and serve me while I eat and drink. And then when I'm done, because servants do need to eat and drink, you can go and get yourself something to eat and drink. And so the servant comes in and he doesn't rest because there's more work to do, and this brings us to lesson one. The parable of the unprofitable servant teaches us we, part one, always have more work to do for the master. We always have more work to do for the master. So the plowing's done, the shepherding's done, we get to leave the field and we come into the house, but we don't head to the living room (laughs) to relax. We head to the bathroom to get cleaned up, and then when we're done in the bathroom, we head to the kitchen to start preparing the meal, and then after the kitchen, we head to the dining room not to eat, but then to serve the meal and to wait on the master until he's done eating. And so what is Jesus doing in these verses? Is he teaching us how to be good servants to earthly masters. Well, to be like this would definitely make you a good servant to an earthly master. You would probably be about the most attractive servant if you obeyed these verses to an earthly master. But that's not what he's doing. Much of this imagery is used to describe our service to the Lord elsewhere in Scripture. For example, Jesus discusses plowing here. And what did Jesus say in Luke 9, 62? You don't have to turn there. No one's going to put, who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So he uses plowing as an analogy for our earthly service. Jesus discusses getting dressed properly in verse 8. If you're using the ESV, there's probably a footnote that tells you that it means gird yourself, which is how it's translated in some Bibles, I think, like the New King James and King James. So Jesus tells us to gird ourselves here we're told elsewhere to do that, not physically, but mentally. Your minds might go to Peter's first, first letter. First Peter 1 Peter 1.13, he says, Gird up the loins of your mind. So not physically, but mentally. Be sober and rest your hope fully upon the grace that's to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So my point is, these physical services are used to picture the spiritual service that we do for the Lord. Jesus is teaching that following him is hard, the difficult work never ends, we can never feel like we have done enough. If you think of the most faithful servants of Christ that you know, they probably seem like the ones who rest the least. And it's not to say that there's no place for rest for servants of Christ. We know rest is an important topic in Scripture, but faithful servants are going to be working hard, and they're going to be working hard frequently. 
You can probably see the application that this parable would have for people who have not started their Christian journeys, but have been serving the Lord faithfully for decades. Because what would it be very tempting to think when you've faithfully served the Lord for decades? I've done enough. I've been at this long enough. How much more do I need to do? I have reached a point that I can feel good about resting and relaxing. They could be comfortable coming in from the field, collapsing in the living room and putting up their feet. But then right when they're about to do that, they read these verses and Jesus says, what? Get in the kitchen. <laughs> you are not done yet. Keep, and what, I'll be honest with you, one of the saddest things that I see, it is older saints that stop being as faithful. I mean, just think about that for a moment, how tragic that is. Saints who have served the Lord faithfully for decades are approaching the finish line, and then what? No, I'm just, I'm done. I mean, that is a sad thing. One of the best things to see, and I know the way we serve changes. You kind of think about the priests in the Old Testament, that they step back to an assisting role. We get older, and and our, our activity or service doesn't always look the same, but we're still using the time and energy God's given us to serve faithfully. One of the worst things to see is older saints who have just given up their lives to luxury and to pleasure. And so God forbid that we would, we would be like that as we get older. And so they need these verses. They need to see what Jesus said that would prevent them from stopping serving him before we should. Dean Plumpter said, the disciples were looking for the crown of labor before their work was done. They were looking for the wreath of the conqueror before the battle was finished. So in other words, they had more to do, and Jesus wanted them and us to keep going. The next lesson the parable of the unfor- unprofitable servant teaches us that we should part two, prefer the master to ourselves. Part two, we should prefer the master to ourselves. Look at verse eight with me one more time. And as we look at this verse, I just want you to notice that it's all about the master. There are no reservations or apologies. There's no reluctance. Jesus doesn't cringe when he says this. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink, and then afterward you will eat and drink? And see, read this and say, wow, it looks like it's all about the master. It is all about the master. (laughs) At the end of the verse, notice the word afterward. He says, you're going to prefer me, you're going to think about me and what I want and what satisfies me, and afterward, then you can think about yourself. But until then, it's all about me, and Christ doesn't apologize for that. The master's pleasure comes before our own. We prefer him to ourselves. This is how we should live this life. We prefer the master to ourselves, so the question is never this. What do I want The question is, what does Christ want for me? I'm striving not to live for myself. I'm striving to live for Christ. It's not to say that we can't have desires or expectations, 
but that we would hold them loosely and say, Lord, I would desire this. Would this be your will for me? If so, it would be a blessing for me to have this, to bring those petitions to the Lord, but to hold them loosely enough that in case it's not his will for us, we would be willing to release them. And and fortunately, here's one reason it's easy to pray this. We serve a good God who loves his children, who has good gifts and blessings for us. And many times to get the things that we think we want would be detrimental to us. And we can look back and thank God that he didn't answer those prayers the way that we desired. And so it's in our best interest to hold these things very loosely because only he knows what's best for us. Now at this point, you're kind of wondering, well, if a servant's going to serve this faithfully, what is he going to get for all of his service when he's done? Is the master going to reward him? Is he going to at least get a thank you? I'm glad you guys are wondering that because look at verse 9. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? And so again, this is a rhetorical question. It anticipates a negative answer. Or in other words, it anticipates Jesus' listener saying, no, the master does not thank the servant for what the servant has done. When the servant comes in, he doesn't compliment him, he doesn't feed him, he doesn't serve him, he doesn't even thank him. Now, this might seem a little harsh to us, but I'll tell you this, and this is important. It did not sound harsh to Jesus' listeners. That's why he could ask rhetorical questions that he knew they knew the answers to. They knew the servant was not a volunteer. He was an employee. This is what he was paid to do. And as the verse says, this is what he was commanded to do. Kenneth Bailey is a scholar who studied life in ancient Middle Eastern villages like Jesus lived and preached in. And listen to what he wrote. This is fascinating. He says, in our technological age with a 40-hour work week, powerful labor unions, and time and a half for overtime, the world of this parable seems not only distant but unfair. After a long, hard day in the field, such a servant surely has earned the right to a little appreciation, some comforts, and a few rewards. But Jesus is building on a well-known and widely accepted pattern of behavior in the Middle East. The master-servant relationship and its ancient and modern expression implies acceptance of authority and obedience to that authority, and it is a matter of honor." The outsider needs to be sensitive to the security that this classical relationship provides for the servant and the sense of worth and meaning that is deeply felt on the part of a servant who serves such a great man. These qualities of meaning, worth, security, and relationship are often tragically missing from the life of the modern worker. The servant offers loyalty, obedience, a great deal of hard work, but with no authentic Middle Eastern nobleman, the benefits mentioned above are enormous. Certainly no one in any Middle Eastern audience could imagine any servant expecting special honor after fulfilling his duty. The master is not indebted to him for having plowed the field or guarded the sheep, We're not even dealing with harsh hours imposed by an unfeeling master, but rather the normal expectation of a relatively short day's chores. So the problem is what? It is our selfish, lazy culture 
that causes us to look at this and believe it's unfair. It is our senses of entitlement that make the servant's position look unattractive. But here's the truth. This servant's position was incredibly attractive to the listeners in Jesus' day because this servant stood in contrast to day laborers who went out every day just to get that day's pay, hoping someone would hire them. In other words, there were laborers that went out every day just hoping to have for that day what this servant knew that he was able to have every day because he had a master that would what? Care for him and provide for him. So believe it or not, this servant's position was actually very attractive to Jesus' listeners in contrast to the day laborers who didn't know if they were going to get to work that day, which meant they didn't know if they were going to get to what that day? Eat. The servant in this master's house had an owner who cared for him and provided for him, and it's a fitting picture of our relationship with our master. We are his servants. He cares for us. He provides for us. It is our privilege to be able to serve him. And to make it perfectly clear that this is about our relationship with Christ, Jesus prevents us from thinking otherwise with verse 10. So you also. So you're wondering, is this really about us, or is it about earthly servant-master relationships in Christ's day? Jesus brings home here, and he says, so you also, you being disciples of mine, when you've done all that you were commanded to do, in other words, in your relationship with me, you say we are unworthy or unprofitable servants. We've only done what was our duty. And this brings us to the next part of lesson one. Part three, we have never went above and beyond. Part three, we have never went above and beyond. Have you ever had someone try to impress you, but it wasn't impressive? I don't mean it wasn't impressive because they seemed proud or they were bragging, which always has the opposite effect, right? People, we, we would brag or we would be proud because we're trying to impress, but generally it's, it's very unimpressive. But I don't mean that. I just mean they were doing something that they thought was impressive, but it just did not impress you. It was not impressive. Usually we see this with children, and I'll give you some examples that I was thinking about this past week that stood out to me as I was preparing this sermon so when I was a school teacher, I would have yard duty, and I'd walk around the playground, and the students would yell at me to watch the things they were doing. And so one of the things that stands out is handball. There'd be this big wall, they'd have this red bouncy ball, and they'd hit this ball against the wall, trying to get it to go as high as they could, and, if, and it never failed. You couldn't walk past them playing this game without them yelling out to you to get you to watch how high they could hit this ball, Right? Now, out of the hundreds of times that I ever saw these students hitting this ball, being very pleased with how high they were hitting it, do you think there was ever one time that I went, that was incredible. I have never seen anyone hit a ball that high. Now, so they're super pleased with themselves, but to be honest, it's very unimpressive. You walk past the basketball court, and it never fails that there are students playing basketball, and when they see you, they're going to yell to you, and they're going to say, watch this missile up here, watch this, watch this. And then they're going to go way back. I don't even, I don't even mean going to like the free throw line or the three-point line. They're heading toward like the half-court line. And then they're going to take this ball, and with all their strength, they're going to throw it 
while you're watching at the hoop, and half the time, half, that's an understatement, most of the time they don't even hit the backboard, right? So they think you're going to be really pleased with this, and, and if they could, they'd keep you there the entire recess, watching them over and over, just throwing the basketball at the, at the backboard. They think this is very impressive. One time, Kate and I were at this party, and there was this child who kept yelling at his parents to watch him jump into this pool. Now, to be clear, that's what he was doing. He was jumping in a pool. <laughs> he wasn't doing a forward four-and-a-half somersault in the tuck position. He wasn't doing a forward two-and-a-half somersault in the pike position or a forward one-and-a-half somersault in the tuck position. He wasn't even doing a forward dive. In the, he wasn't even diving at all. I mean, even a cannonball would have been more impressive than what he was doing. He was just jumping in. And he's yelling constantly for his parents to watch because he was convinced that this was very impressive. This past week, a pastor friend of mine, he lives in Wisconsin, but his in-laws are in Washington, and his in-laws own this trampoline park. And so he let me know he's coming to Washington, and he says, hey, it'd be good to see you. Why don't you come up? I have all my kids here. Why don't you come up with your kids? We can play at this trampoline park all day. And so I bring my kids up on my day off and hang out with his family all day. Well, you can guess when you're at a trampoline park with a bunch of your kids, what are you hearing frequently? Watch this, watch this, daddy, watch this, daddy, watch this, watch me, watch me. Look at this, look at this. Now, before you think I'm making fun of any of the children in these examples, I want to be clear that I'm not. Because they don't know better. Who am I making fun of? You. Old people, me. (laughs) I'm making fun of you guys. And I'm making fun of myself because we do know better. Hey, Lord, look at me. Did you see what I did? I went to church today. Hey, I, I went to the, to the prayer meeting. I performed in the choir. Hey, I was at the church work day. Hey, I brought this person a meal. Hey, I prayed this long. I was the VBS director. And just to be clear, we do need a VBS director. <laughs> you just can't... One of the requirements is you can't brag about it. Although, to be honest, when I think about some of the ministries in the church, that's one that you could almost brag about because it's so difficult. But <clears throat> so if someone hears that, you know, and just a little conviction about being the VBS director, I'll be up front after service and come let me know. God burdened you to take that on. <laughs> so we just don't serve Jesus with an attitude that expects him to be impressed with us. We've never done anything impressive to him. For unprofitable servants like this, there must be no acting like Peter. This is one of the lesser-known times. I mean, he kind of has his his huge debacles when when he opened his mouth. This one doesn't get as much attention, but listen to this. He said this. Matthew 19, 27. See, we have left everything and followed you. What then shall we get? Wow. He said that. He actually said that to the Lord. He said, we've left everything. And we've given up everything for you. Now, what do we get in return? What are you going to do for us? The truth is that it should seem strange that Jesus would thank us or reward us considering all we have left to do, considering all he has done for us, and considering all we have done, he empowered us to do anyway or prepared beforehand in the language of Ephesians 2.10 for us to do. Now, I'll tell you one of the main reasons that Jesus had to preach this to the disciples, and it had to do with the religious leaders. It had to do with 
what Jesus called elsewhere their leaven or their teaching or their influence. The way that leaven influences bread, Jesus could see the religious leaders leaven influencing the disciples. The religious leaders thought they were great. They thought they went above and beyond. They thought God would be pleased with them. They thought that God owed them because of their service and righteousness. And Jesus knew this teaching was permeating his disciples. I don't mean the 12, maybe them too, but I mean the thousands who were following him. And so he had to contradict that. He had to prevent them from thinking similarly. He didn't want us patting ourselves on the back, thinking that God's impressed, that he owes us any special rewards or favors. (laughs) Because the fact of the matter is, no matter what we have done, no matter how well we have done it, no matter how good it might look to us, or no matter how much it might impress others, we should always be able to sit back and with complete honesty say what? I am an unworthy or unprofitable servant. And I want to be clear about why this is not the case and why this is the case. Here's why it's not the case. It's not the case because nobody has ever done anything impressive for the Lord. I am not saying that nobody has ever done anything impressive for the Lord. And I'm not saying nobody has ever sacrificed for the Lord. This week I was thinking about missionaries in in third world countries, living in horrific conditions, seeing very few conversions, experiencing persecution. I thought about people who have experienced terrible diseases and trials, and that's not the honorable part, but born up under those trials or diseases in Christ-honoring ways. The more messages that I receive from people in difficult marriages who remain faithful to difficult spouses, the more convinced I become of just how honorable that is. And when people are remaining faithful to unfaithful spouses, they are doing that to be faithful to the Lord. It's a reflection of their commitment to the vows that they made on their wedding day, to to their spouse, but more importantly, to the Lord himself. I think about people who've been persecuted or martyred for their faith. A few weeks ago, I was reading about Richard Wormbrand. I think some of you read his book or are familiar with it, uh, Tortured for Christ. Richard's imprisoned. He's tortured, released, and then what does he do? Heads back to the field to be imprisoned and tortured again. There were parts where he said he couldn't even come up with the words to describe the pain that he experienced. He couldn't even describe it. There were no words to capture how excruciating it was. And he'd go through that daily, preparing himself for the daily torture, is released, and then goes back to the field to be imprisoned again. So I would never say that these people didn't serve Christ in impressive, honorable, wonderful ways that could encourage us and challenge us. So how could these people still be called unprofitable servants? The answer is found in contrasting. It is found in contrasting what they have done for Christ with what Christ has done for them. So it's not to say that they haven't done great things for Christ. It's just to say that Christ has done much greater things for them. So it's not to minimize what many people have done for the Lord. It's just to maximize what the Lord has done for them. Spurgeon said, what what have we done for Christ compared to what he has done for us? 
Our service put beside Christ is like one single grain of dust in comparison with the mighty orb of the sun. So all the service that we ever do for Christ pales in comparison in such a way that we should always be able to sit back and call ourselves unprofitable or unworthy servants, always feeling this very deep sense of indebtedness toward the Lord because of what he's done for us. Now, let me tell you what's shocking about all this. What is our master going to do come the end of our lives, assuming we've been faithful? Matthew 25, 21, and 23, well done, good and faithful servant. So there is a thanks coming. There is a reward coming. If you write in your Bible, you can circle verse 8, and you can write Luke 12, 37. So if you write in your Bibles, circle verse 8, draw a line, and write Luke 12, 37, which is a wonderful compliment to this passage, and then turn to Luke 12. Turn to Luke 12. I know we covered these verses 14 years ago. So Luke 12, we'll start at verse 35. Luke 12, 35, Jesus says, stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. This is all about being faithful to Christ when he returns. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master. So there's more servant master language here. To come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door. They're standing at the door waiting for the master. That's how ready and faithful they are. As soon as he comes to the door, once he knocks, you open the door for him. And then verse 37, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake or faithful or serving when he comes. Truly I say to you, and then we read that for this. Look at this. He will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them one more time he will dress himself for service he will have them recline at table and he will have and he will come and serve them did you see that did you see the parallelism but it's the opposite isn't it you just read the opposite in luke 12 37 of what you read in luke 17 let us listen back to back Luke 17, verse 7, Are any of you going to have a servant and say to him, Come at once, recline at table? Will he not rather say, Prepare supper for me, you get dressed properly, serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward you can eat and drink? Now in Luke 12, 37, Jesus is going to dress himself for service. He's going to have them recline at the table, and he's going to come and serve them. So in Luke 17, Jesus says, There's no way a master is doing this for his servants. And then in Luke 12, Jesus says, I'm the master who's doing this for my servants. How do we explain this? He finds the faithful servants. He tells them to recline at the table. He girds himself, and then he serves them. So how do we reconcile verses that look like they contradict other verses? They don't contradict, they complement. And here's how. The verses in Luke 17 that we've been studying this morning are about this life, our faithfulness, and our service to Christ in this life as we look forward to his return the verses in luke 12 are about when christ has returned 
and what he does for those who had been faithfully serving him anticipating or looking forward to that return and this brings us to lesson two the master will serve those who faithfully served him the master will serve those who faithfully served him and you almost wouldn't believe it if it wasn't written here to be honest it's convicting it's challenging for me you write this and you're like it almost it almost feels I don't want to say blasphemous but sinful to talk about Christ serving us that's what it says that's what we just read in an unbelievable reversal Jesus says that he will serve the servants who faithfully served him so Luke 17 we don't stop working we don't stop serving because we're still running the race we haven't crossed the finish line we're still looking forward to Christ's return and so until that last breath we're exhausting ourselves our energy and our time for him but that's not Luke 12. Luke 12 is you've crossed the finish line Christ has returned and then this is how Christ responds to those who've been faithful to him he faithfully serves them in Luke 12 37 and you can read it a hundred times and this is what impression you will get it's like Jesus says you've worked hard you've done such a good job now you can sit down and relax I'll serve you after all you've done now it is my turn that's what he's communicating with Luke 12 37 incredibly humbling you're almost uncomfortable with it because it sounds like it contradicts so much of the sermon you're you're kind of listening saying hey pastor Scott you know after all we've done for Jesus should you really say that isn't it all about what he has done for us we owe him our lives we owe him our service he doesn't owe us anything and that's true I understand I feel the same but this is what the text says so this is what I preach to you but maybe to be honest we shouldn't be that surprised because when I look at John or when I look at Luke 12 37 and Jesus describes there how he's gonna gird himself and he's going to serve his servants did we see something like that in his earthly ministry John 13 4 Jesus rose from supper he laid aside his garments he took a towel he girded himself after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples feet to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him Lord are you washing my feet why did Peter say that to Jesus because he's as shocked as you are or he's as shocked as we are by the thought or for him the reality of his master serving him Peter himself wanted to restrain Jesus it's like when Jesus goes out to be baptized and what does John do he tried to stop him do you remember that Jesus is going to get baptized by John John's like whoa whoa wait this is backward I can't baptize you you need to be the one to baptize me he was uncomfortable with it too Peter was surprised to be served by his master and I'm sure we will be surprised too but this is what we're told will happen now let me conclude with this the attitude that Jesus wants us to have in these verses it's about humility but it's not the kind of false humility that says oh I can't do anything oh I'm no good at anything whenever people talk like that it's laced with pride do you know why because it's still all about them the attention is still on themselves and to be honest with you often that sort of humility is an excuse 
to not do the things that the Lord wants them to do. Oh, I'm not good enough. Oh, I couldn't do that. I'm too bad. I'm too terrible. Well, when the attention is taken off of them and it's put on Christ, the truly humble servant can't help but say, I think about what Christ has done for me and I am bound to serve him. I want nothing more than to serve him in response because of what he has done for me. And so the attitude Jesus wants to have in these verses, it's not that false humility that says, I'm no good at anything. Instead, it's about recognizing how much more Christ has done for us. We think about that great sacrifice he made and everything we've ever done just pales in comparison. When we think about all Christ has done for us, we can't help but call ourselves unprofitable or unworthy servants. And then we serve Christ with these grateful hearts that always feel indebted to him. If you have anything, any questions about anything that I've shared in this morning's sermon or I can pray for you in any way, I'll be up front after service and I consider it a privilege to speak with you. Father, I thank you for these very challenging verses this morning that I hope put our service to you in the right light for us. Help us to view ourselves correctly, that we serve you filled with indebtedness because of what you've done for us, Lord, that everything we would do would pale in comparison. But give us a thankfulness that there would even come a time should we be faithful that as we read this morning in Luke 12, you read it for us to be mindful of it, that you do look forward to thanking us and saying, well done, good and faithful servant, and that we would long to hear those words, Lord, that we'd wake up each day, that those would be the words that we would be living to hear with the energy and time that you've given us. I thank you for each person here as we hopefully stay active for you, Lord. Let it just be not to save us, that we don't look at our works and think that they would add to our salvation in any way, but that all of our works are an outpouring of worship for you because of what you've done for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.